This evening we're going to be in uh, 2 Samuel chapter 19. Uh, lots that we're going to, as I was thinking even in that last song, uh, lots that we can um, really glean from, from this chapter. Uh, just a, you know, Some chapters are a bit more variety than others, and, and I think this is one of those to where we can really just dig deep and get some, uh, a lot of things out of it that uh, could be very applicable to us. If not now, then at some point as we continue to grow in the Lord and, uh, and seek Him and desire to bless and glorify Him. I hope your day has been uh, a good one uh, in light of the fact that we belong to the Lord and uh, we are His forever. You know, we put things in proper perspective and that's how it should be. So regardless of how your day's gone, um, we ought to always praise the Lord and and, uh, and be reminded of the hope that we have in him. Uh, the men on Monday, we studied Philippians chapter 4, and that's one of the things uh, that's probably the main uh, point that we saw as we considered how it was that the, what was the main theme of, of Philippians, first of all? Joy, right? So we ought to, yeah, joy. <laughs> there you go. That's the spirit. <laughs> But we, we ought to uh, know how to be content in the Lord in any state we're in, including California. All right, so Second uh, Samuel chapter 19 is where we're at. Uh, so let's pray. Father, we thank you, Lord, for your faithfulness. We thank you for your mercy, your compassion, your grace. Uh, Lord, these are all characteristics that we're going to see exemplified this evening. Uh, I pray, Father, that uh, in the humanity, though, that we see David in, that we can relate to him, Lord, knowing that he is, he is a man, Lord, he's, uh, he's someone who faltered, and Lord, at other times excelled in bringing you glory. Lord, we're no different. Lord, as we, uh, as we study your word, I pray, Father, that your spirit would give us just a good, clear understanding of what we have before us in this chapter. May you be honored and glorified, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So yeah, so David was considered by the Lord as a man after God's own heart. But David was still a man. Much like you and I, a human being who... We know, uh, as far as Scripture tells us, um, none is righteous, no, not one. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And so <clears throat> we see in this chapter how it is that David grieves over his son Absalom. And in fact, we go from the last chapter and we just continue that uh, process of grieving and mourning for his son Absalom into this chapter. And we see how that impacts those around him. You know, uh, he... At the same time, we need to understand that he recovers, though. David doesn't stay there, but he recovers from where he is as far as his grief and his mourning is concerned. And he does what he's called to do by the Lord. Kind of snaps out of it. And he begins to once again lead Israel. And as we'll see, though, he does it with compassion and he does it with equity. David doesn't rule by force. We haven't seen David rule by force at all. And 
nor will we see him uh, uh, lead by force, rule by force, this evening through this chapter. But instead he rules by faith, faith in the Lord, allowing God to move the hearts of the people. We'll see that this evening. And because of what he allows God to do by the Spirit, he comes back to Jerusalem to rule once again as king over Israel. The whole kingdom united, both the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, both Israel and Judah. So this is his journey back to Jerusalem after having been on the run as his son Absalom was pursuing him. We'll see a man who is open to being corrected, a man who is compassionate and merciful, generous, and sought to win back the hearts of Israel to be their king by the exercise and through the exercise of their free will. Think about how it is that the Lord reigns in your heart, perhaps in similar fashion. It's not by force. It's not because he overpowers you or or overrules you, which he can. But he desires to do it by your choice, by allowing him to come into that place and take that place in your heart. And this is something that we we really need to um, receive and possess personally something that we ought to confess ourselves in area, every area of our lives, not just certain portions of our lives, but every area of our lives. So 2 Samuel chapter 19, verse 1. So it was told Joab, Behold, the king is weeping and mourning for Absalom. So the victory that day was turned into mourning for all the people. For the people heard that day, the king is grieving for his son. And the people stole into the city that day as people steal in who are ashamed when they flee in battle. The king covered his face and the king cried with a loud voice, O my son Absalom, O Absalom, my son, my son. Let's pause for a moment there. This is where we left off last week, basically. The king is, um, has gone, had gone into his chamber and he was weeping for his son. And so we see that continuing into this chapter, the same thing, only it has an effect on everyone around him. Uh, When the king heard that his son Absalom had been killed in battle, he went into somewhat, you could say, a state of shock. It's, uh, you, you can see that by how he responded to the news of his son having died in battle. He seemed to be stuck in, you could say, an emotional pit of grief. And the reason I say this is because King David remained so long in this state of mourning that someone felt compelled to go tell Joab that the king is weeping and mourning so much that the people are no longer rejoicing over the victory that they knew. But rather, they were all going home at this time. Stopped all signs of celebrations. And they all went home ashamed, as if they had actually lost the battle. Is there a such thing as excessive mourning? Is there a such thing as inappropriate mourning? Perhaps for the believer, for the Christian, 
you could say there is. I know each person grieves differently. I know that. But is there something common that should be considered in light of our faith, in light of our hope, in light of what is before us, to whom we belong as Christians? Well, as I always say, let's consider the word. What does the word tell us? You know, let's turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. First Thessalonians chapter four. In verse thirteen is where we're going to start. First Thessalonians chapter four and verse thirteen. The Apostle Paul writes to the Thessalonians, he said he says, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. If you notice throughout all those verses that we read, uh, this is certainty. This is not the Apostle Paul, uh, you know, my theory is, is that this is what's going to happen. Potentially, this is what you can experience at some point in the, in the future. These are just my thoughts, and I want to encourage you with them. Would that be encouraging at all? No. There's no certainty in that, right? This is my opinion. There's a lot of opinions out there, and if they don't line up with the Word of God, then that's all they are. They're opinions. And if they actually oppose the Word of God, then that is false. That is not true. That is not reality. For the Apostle Paul, he wrote to the Thessalonians telling them exactly what would happen. And the emphasis here, of course, uh, considering our text, is verse 13 in which it is written, but we do not want you to be uninformed. And so this, at this point, we should be alert. We should be mindful of what comes after that because at this point, the Lord wants us to be informed. And he tells us what's going to take place. And he says, brothers, about those who are asleep. Here's another way of putting this. About those who have died. This is what he says. that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. Do, do we have hope? In whom do we have hope? In Jesus, right? So, in light of this, would it be possible, and I ask the question again, would it be possible to mourn excessively or inappropriately? Yeah. Would it not be unbelief? To grieve as the world does over the death of someone, especially 
who is a Christian, can you change anything? And that is no, right? It doesn't lack compassion. We're not callous. We do miss someone who has died, right? And I see that often, unfortunately. And at the same time, fortunately, because for me, I, I believe that what the Lord has exposed me to as far as my chaplaincy is concerned is exactly what he wanted to expose me to. And that's just for their ministry. But I see how different people handle death differently. But the question for us is, is there such thing as, as grieving or mourning in a way that is not fitting for a Christian to grieve or mourn? And would that not express an unbelief? An unbelief in the hope that we claim to know. Think about the reason why someone would grieve much and lose actually self-control over a long period of time for someone who has died and is with the Lord. Oh, brothers and sisters, when we put things in proper perspective, and if we consider what we have come to know, right? And we tell others about this, even 1 Thessalonians 4, hey, you want to know what comes after? Is This is what's going to happen in the future. If we think about that, if we think about the words of the Apostle Paul, to live is Christ and to die is gain, right? Um, we breathe our last here, we breathe our first where? Is it not in the glory of God? So yes, we will miss those who die in Christ, in the Lord, right? But hey, do we not know beyond a shadow of a doubt that that brother or sister is with the Lord? Do you think they desire to come back? Absolutely not, right? So let me ask you this. We miss them, but wouldn't, wouldn't we be celebrating too? It's a home going, right? That's what it would be. Seems that 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13 clearly states that there should be a difference in the way Christians grieve from the way the world grieves. They have no hope. As Christians, we have hope in Christ. Well, King David was a man who was caught up in a deep state of grief. And he mourned so much that it impacted everyone around him. In fact, they all went home in shame. The description of how they were made to feel is to come through Joab. But just imagine, it's a time of celebration, but they were, went home in shame. Now, is, is that in truth? Is that how they went home in truth? Or was that something that was false? It was something that was false, right? They, they should have known victory. They, should have, they shouldn't have been going home in shame. We oftentimes don't think that the devil can tempt us in time of mourning. We, we put up this guard and, and we, we ourselves who are in grief and mourning will accuse other, others of being lacking in compassion. You just don't understand and all that. And of course, no one does. But just know that even our, in our time of grief and mourning, we are not justified in acting in an unchristlike manner. Even in that, we ought to be sober-minded and in control because the devil will seek every opportunity to do something that tempts us into doing 
or committing sin because he doesn't care. He really doesn't care. We are all called to be sober-minded, thinking clearly, being able to reason. 1 Peter 5.9 says, Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And also in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, uh, verses 3-5, through 5, says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's suffering, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. So, I spent some time there because that's not an area where many people like to talk much about. And I think we ought to be well prepared for what is to come. And to, if the Lord tarries, we're going to experience more death. As Christians, how are we to handle those things? That's very important. Because it, it, it either demonstrates our deep belief in what we claim to know, or it demonstrates a lack of belief in what we declare. So, David, though, was in this place. He was in a deep pit of grief and mourning. But then Joab came. Verse 5, Then Joab came into the house of the king and said, You have today covered with shame the faces of all your servants, who have this day saved your life and the lives of your sons and your daughters and the lives of your wives and your concubines, because you love those who hate you and hate those who love you. For you have made it clear today that commanders and servants are nothing to you. For today I know that if Absalom were alive and all of us were dead today, then you would be pleased. Now therefore arise, go out and speak kindly to your servants. For I swear by the Lord, if you do not go, not a man will stay with you this night. And this will be worse for you than all the evil that has come upon you from your, from your youth until now. Then the king arose and took his seat in the gate, and the people were all told, Behold, the king is sitting in the gate, and all the people came before the king. So Joab came at King David with some sobering words. He, he wanted to bring David back. He wanted to basically have him snap back into reality and to help him understand the impact that his actions were having on Israel. Joab told King David that the people were made to feel shame over their victory. In case you didn't know, my Lord, this is what your behavior is doing to the people. They are made to feel shame over their victory in battle instead of being able to celebrate something that was good and something that was desirable. You can say that what David was doing was very selfish in many ways. You see, there was a bigger picture to consider. And as king, David had the responsibility to control himself and act kingly with faith in the Lord and moving in God's strength. Um, I know we can say that David should be able to discipline himself and control himself and act in a kingly manner. But again, going back to the fact that you and I profess a faith and a hope in the Lord. 
there is behavior unbecoming of a Christian. And for us, we too ought to come to our senses and really apply what we've come to know and learn. Here are some facts. King David made people feel as if he rather they all die than his son Absalom. That's the way he made them feel. That's what he was expressing. King David made Israel feel as if their victory was not a victory at all, but a failure because Absalom had perished. Just by his actions. I know of people that are so absorbed over the loss of a loved one that they too, in many ways, stop living. Stop living. Someone very close to me that happened to him. I I remember finally having to confront this person saying, you know, when that one person died, you might as well have been buried with them because you stopped living. And so many others around them needed them. They could have blessed. They could have been someone who could have continued and others could have benefited by, by their living. But there are people who are in the same place today. One person dies, and in much the same manner, spiritually or emotionally, just they detach from everyone and everything. They just don't care, and they stop living. A person can be selfish and foolish when one loses their mind and seems dead to everyone else in the midst of loss and beyond. Again, a Christian should not grieve as the world because the world has no hope. Again, I remind you of 1 Thessalonians 4.13. Don't let what I'm telling you as far as that story is concerned ever be you. As my brothers and sisters, uh, we should not respond in that manner. Now, Joab told King David that if he, had, didn't, that if he didn't snap out of it, he, he told him about further consequences. You think it was bad before, it's going to be even worse today if you don't snap out of it. So therefore, speak kindly to the people. Otherwise, it's going to... Th- no day will be as worse as this. Not from your youth to now. It, it, will be, it will go bad for you. In other words, Joab was telling King David that he needed to go encourage the people. And if he didn't, he would lose them. And so what we see here is, is a man who was humble, though. King David, he was a king, Right? Who's Joab but the commander of, of the army of, of Israel? And yet, he came to him and he considered his word. And David responded and went and took his seat at the gate. And it says here that the people came to him. Let me ask you this. Do you think David felt like doing this? <laughs> Absolutely not, right? A Christian will hold his hope in Christ as preeminent. Let me say that again. A Christian will hold his hope in Christ as preeminent, first and foremost, above everything. Everything that you're experiencing, everything that you're going through, all your circumstances, doesn't matter if they're big or small. We ought to, as Christians, hold our hope in Christ as preeminent over everything. 
David no longer allowed his feelings at this point to dictate his actions. He overruled his feelings and did what was right. He understood his responsibilities and acted on them for the sake of others. So instead of thinking about himself, he's now thinking about others and really the truth of God's word. In 2 Corinthians chapter 10, in verse 3, it says, and this is about our thoughts. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. Where does this all happen? What, what is Satan battling for? Your thoughts. What we just read there in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, in these verses, this is all what's happening. It's reality. You know, if you don't guard your thoughts, if you don't subject them to the authority of God, then we're in trouble. We are in deep trouble as Christians. We ought to subject them to the authority and bring them under subjection to the Lord. A true friend is willing to wound. Because I also want to point out that Joab cared enough to say something. He confronted David and told him what he needed to hear, not what David wanted to hear, but he told him what he needed to hear. How often do we tell others what they, just, what they want to hear? I think too often. Sometimes we need to tell each other what we need to hear. Proverbs 27.6 says, Faithful are the wounds of a friend, profuse are the kisses of an enemy. So if someone is just kissing you often, <laughs> I think again, it, it might be that they're not telling you what you need to, hear, need to hear. They're just telling you what you want to hear. But sometimes a true friend will wound Joab cared enough to confront David, and David was wise enough to receive it. Wise enough to receive it. A fool will reject it. Verse, uh, let's continue in verse 8. <clears throat> now Israel had fled every man to his own home, and all the people were arguing throughout all the tribes of Israel, saying, The king delivered us from the hand of our enemies and saved us from the hand of the Philistines, and now he has fled out of the land from Absalom. But Absalom, whom we anointed over us, is dead in battle. Now, therefore, why do you say nothing about bringing the king back? So, meanwhile, while this is going on with King David, there's turmoil, arguing, arguments about why the kingdom wasn't yet restored under King David. Uh, they confess a few things here. They agree that David had delivered them from the Philistines. We know that to be true. And they confessed that they had rejected him, which was true. And so that this was a time of confession for them. And instead, though, they, they rejected him. They allowed Absalom to reign over them. But at this point, they are, they are agreeing, hey, okay, so Absalom is dead. He died in battle. And uh, why aren't we bringing David back as king? Kind of seems like an odd, to me, seems like an odd thing to argue about since there's really, what's, what's the alternative? Wasn't David the only king that was anointed and called on by God to be king over Israel? 
It seems foolish to argue about such a thing. When you realize you have crowned someone else or something else in the place of Jesus in your life, do you argue within yourself as to whether to acknowledge Jesus as king once more of your whole life? Or do you simply acknowledge that which should be true? I remember years ago when I recommitted my life to the Lord, that was a battle that I had. Because I had allowed so many other things to reign in my life. Just different things. And they wreaked havoc in my life. Destroyed me. Nearly destroyed my marriage. He would have done so much more. And I remember this was a struggle that I had within me. But it came to a point to where I fully, completely recommitted my life to the Lord. And I haven't looked back since. But it had to come to a point to where I was completely surrendering to the lordship of Jesus as king. Crowning something or someone else only brings confusion. It brings unrest. And until you fully subject yourself to Jesus as king, you will not know peace. He is the prince of peace. You know, as we commit our lives to him, we're not anxious for anything. But it's that peace that surpasses all understanding that guards our hearts and our minds. I've gone through this time and time again, how it is that our hearts are deceitful and wicked. Our thoughts can run away with us. And we just look at, looked at what the Apostle Paul told the Corinthians, that there's a warfare that's happening, uh, the battle for our minds. And so with all of this, knowing it to be true, we know that outside of Christ, we can't know peace. But when we come to know Jesus, we know peace. As a Christian, it should seem foolish to argue whether to, quote-unquote, bring back Jesus to reign as Lord or not. So while they were arguing, David was working through a couple of priests, Zadok and Abiathar. So 11, verse 11, as we continue, says, And King David sent his message to Zadok and Abiathar, the priests, Say to the elders of Judah, Why should you be the last to bring the king back to his house when the word of all Israel has come to the king? You are my brothers, you are my bone and my flesh. Why then should you be the last to bring back the king? And say to Amasa, are you not my bone and my flesh? God do so to me and more also if you are not commander of my army from now on in place of Joab. And he swayed the heart of all the men of Judah as one man so that they sent word to the king. Return both you and all your servants. So the king came back to the Jordan and Judah came to Gilgal to meet the king and to bring the king over the Jordan. So here we see something, uh, we can't just like gloss over it, uh, something very important that we see here, how it is that David reasoned with the elders of Judah and with even Amasa, who was the commander over Absalom's army. Uh, this served to communicate something very important, and that is reconciliation to those who had previously supported Absalom. Remember how Absalom had, had turned the hearts of the people uh, to follow him. And so it was very important. This, this is a reconciliation. This is a process of reconciling with those who had at one time followed Absalom. And now he was, David was trying to help them understand that it would be something good for them to now follow him. And so he wanted to encourage the restoration of the kingdom under one king, King David. So you could say, as we see here, that King David's diplomacy worked well. 
Because the key verse is verse 14, which says, And he swayed the heart of all the men of Judah as one man. So they were all united. They were all in agreement. So that they sent word to the king, Return both you and all your servants. And again, I point out that David did not force himself upon the people, but he again won them over and, and, and they invited him, you could say at this point, to return as king in Jerusalem. Is this not how the Lord works with us? The Holy Spirit convicts us so that we would acknowledge which should be surrendered and then by your own will, you request God to once again reign how and where he should in your life. 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Is, is it not God's kindness that is meant to lead us to repentance? It is true because it says that in Romans 2, verse 4. And so David demonstrates this self-discipline as king. He is the man who reigns over Israel, and yet he displays this, uh, this discipline, this restraint, and he demonstrates compassion. Verse 16, And Shimei, the son of Gera, the Benjamite from Bahurim, hurried to come down with the men of Judah to meet King David. And with him were a thousand men from Benjamin, and Ziba, the servant of the house of Saul, with his 15 sons and his 20 servants, rushed down to the Jordan before the king. And they crossed the ford to bring over the king's household and to do his pleasure. And Shimei, the son of Gera, fell down before the king as he was about to cross the Jordan. And said to the king, Let not my lord hold me guilty or remember how your servant did wrong on the day my lord the king left Jerusalem. Do not let the king take it to heart, for your servant knows that I have sinned. Therefore, behold, I have come this day, the first of all the house of Joseph, to come down to meet my lord, the king. Abishai, the son of Zariah, answered, Shall not Shimei be put to death for this, because he cursed the Lord's anointed? But David said, what have, I, what, I, what have I to do with you, you sons of Zariah, that you should this day be as an adversary to me? Shall anyone be put to death in Israel this day? For do I not know that I am this day king over Israel? And the king said to Shimei, You shall not die. And the king gave him his oath or his word. You guys remember who or Shimei is? You remember that guy that was cursing David and his men? What was he doing? Was he just he was not just cursing David, but what was he doing? He was he was throwing some he was throwing rocks, right? He was throwing rocks and dust and dirt, and he really made a big deal out of it, and he just followed him out of Jerusalem. Uh, but as we considered Abishai, so this was back in chapter 16, verses 5 through 8. We saw what it was that Shimei did uh, to David as he cursed him and threw rocks and dirt and all of these things. But it was Abishai in chapter 16, verse 9, that said, Then Abishai, the son of Zariah, said to the king, Why should this dead dog curse my lord, the king? Let me go over and take off his head. So that's Abishai and that's Shimei, right? He's the one that uh, wanted to shut Shimei up by taking his whole head off. But David had not allowed him at that point or anyone 
to touch Shimei. He thought, perhaps uh, the Lord has allowed him to, to curse me because I deserve it. And so leave him alone. And, and at this moment, he didn't allow him to touch him either. He said, no. The Lord has made me king over Israel. This is, this is a beautiful day. It's not tainted by shedding blood. Instead, he demonstrated compassion. He demonstrated mercy on that day. But let us consider Shimei momentarily. It seems by all outward appearances, by how it is that he responded, that Shimei sincerely repented of his sin. He knew he did something that he didn't have the authority or place to do. Shimei prostrated himself before the king, face down on the ground. He ran to him. He met him before anyone else. And he confessed his guilt, his sin, his guilt. He asked for mercy. Shimei, you think this was important? His actions demonstrated the urgency of this matter. Reminded of something, Matthew chapter 5, verse 23. Jesus was speaking, he was teaching. And he said, so if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going with him to court. Lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. Uh, it's a lesson of uh, reconciliation and restoration is what we see there. If everyone knew, if everyone who knew their sin, who at some point acknowledged their sin, it was revealed to them, would respond like Shimei did with David in how we just read, how we're told to handle our offenses toward one another by the very mouth of Jesus. If we handle things in this manner, we would have much less unresolved issues or sin amongst brothers and sisters in the church. Genuine repentance is not demonstrated by words or by ideas or by thoughts. But they must be followed up by action. And why is it important to reconcile? Well, it's important to the Lord. Because in, in John chapter 13, verse 34, it says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have loved one another. Now, from what I just read, though, in Matthew, and then going to these two verses, uh, a love that is demonstrated here is not one that just sweeps the sin under the rug. That's not what we're referring to here. That's a worldly kind of a love. Hey, let's all just agree to get along, right? I won't bring up anything anymore, and you don't bring up anything either, and then we're good, right? That's not the kind of love that the, that the Lord is, is pointing out here. Our love should be one that compels us to reconcile, come back and restore that which has been broken, to allow the Lord to mend us together by being obedient to his word. 
That's what we see in John chapter 13, verses 34 and 35, and that's what we saw in Matthew chapter 5, the Sermon on the Mount. And so we see here how it is that David demonstrated compassion and mercy, and he didn't allow anyone to die on such a great day of celebration. The kingdom was being restored. And this is a character that reflected the very character of God. We just read about the character of God. David gave Shimei his word that he would not be put to death. And, there, and then comes Mephibosheth. So this, these are, are all different accounts of the compassion and the mercy that David showed toward others that he didn't have to. Verse 24, and let's continue with Mephibosheth. And Mephibosheth, the son of Saul, came down to meet the king. He had neither taken care of his feet nor trimmed his beard nor washed his clothes from the day the king departed until the day he came back in safety. And when he came to Jerusalem to meet the king, the king said to him, Why did you not go with me, Mephibosheth? He answered, My lord, O king, my servant deceived or my lord, O king, my servant deceived me. For your servant said to him, I will saddle a donkey for myself, that I may ride on it and go with the king. For your servant is lame. He has slandered your servant to my lord the king, but my lord the king is like the angel of God. Do therefore what seems good to you, for all my father's house were but men doomed to death before my lord the king. But you set your servant among those who eat at your table. What further right have I then to cry to the king? And the king said to him, Why speak any more of your affairs? I have decided you and Ziba uh, shall divide the land. And Mephibosheth said to the king, Oh, let him take it all since my lord the king has come safely home. Um, <clears throat> so Mephibosheth comes to David with, in, in humility. And so Mephibosheth explained to David that he had been deceived. Can you imagine, hey, I'm, I'm lame, so I couldn't even get on the horse myself. But the servant, my servant, had gone to tell you, and he deceived me, and he slandered me. He, he told you that I was seeking to benefit from this conflict between you and Absalom, and, uh, and that wasn't true. Right? And at the same time, even though he, this was all true, Mephibosheth said something, and where he was is, is amazing. And that is that he knew that he, and he didn't say that he deserved anything. He, he didn't deserve anything, but... He said, I don't deserve anything. My whole family was doomed to death. And yet you have brought me into this place of, of sitting at your table. And so he submitted himself to the lordship and authority of the, of the king. Telling him, whatever seems good to you, do to me. Whatever it is that you decide to do. Mephibosheth acknowledged David's mercy and grace, knowing that Saul's family deserved nothing but death, but instead, he was given a place at the table of the king. That's beautiful. Not just mercy, but grace. Mephibosheth also said something else about himself. He said, hey, in light of all of this, I have nothing to cry about. Nothing at all. Nothing to complain about. I didn't have that place. I don't have that place now. And I'm asking nothing of you. I'm deserving of nothing. And even when King David had compassion on him and he told Mephibosheth, hey, you and Ziba, you, you would divide the land. He told David that the only thing, and listen to this, the only thing that mattered is that the king 
was home and on the throne. That's the only thing that mattered? Mephibosheth. He said, my Lord, the king has come safely home. That was it. Ziba can keep it all. Mephibosheth was more concerned with the glory of the king than his own place in the kingdom. He didn't argue his rights, but rather desired that the king sit on the throne. As Jesus Christ, the Lord, your Lord, comes safely home to reign in your heart, is that what matters most to you? Not that you demand your, you know, things from him. But if he were to say, ah, son, daughter, you get all of this, would you say it's that, that doesn't matter as long as you are glorified, as long as you reign in my life, that's all really that matters, as long as you're safely home in my own heart. That's really what matters. Because you'll find great contentment in that. Whatever it is that he hands to you, you will be a good steward of. You will handle it well. My desire is that all of us come to know the Lord reigning in our hearts completely, fully. Verse 31, let's continue. It says, Now Barzillai the Gileadite had come down from Rajelam, and he went on with the king to the Jordan to escort him over the Jordan. Barzillai was a very aged man, 80 years old. He had provided the king with food while he stayed at Manaim, for he was a very wealthy man. The king said to Barzillai, come over with me and I will provide for you with me in Jerusalem. But Barzillai said to the king, how many years have I still to live that I should go up with the king to Jerusalem? I am this day 80 years old. Can I discern what is pleasant and what is not? Can your servant taste what he eats or what he drinks? Can I still listen to the voice of singing men and singing women? Why then should your servant be an added burden to my lord the king? Your servant will go a little way over the Jordan with the king. Why should the king repay me with such a reward? Please let your servant return, that I may die in my own city, near the grave of my father and my mother. But here is your servant, Chimam. Let him go over with my lord, the king, and do for him whatever seems good to you. And the king answered, Chimam shall go over with me, and I will do for him whatever seems good to you. And all that you desire of me, I will do for you. And then all the people went over the Jordan, and the king went over, and the king kissed Barzillai and blessed him, and he returned to his own home. The king went on to Gilgal, and Chimam went on with him. All the people of Judah and also half the people of Israel brought the king on his way. Barzillai. Uh, he had been one of the people who provided uh, David and all of his men with uh, much-needed food and encouragement. Uh, this was on the other side of the Jordan when they arrived in uh, Manaim. And this was back in chapter 17, verses 27 through 29. And so there's a few names that were listed there. Barzillai was one of them. And so David wanted to return just the, the, uh, the, the act that he had uh, blessed him with, you know, by blessing him, by honoring him. And so David invited him to come back to the palace in Jerusalem. Come back with me. You know, I want to bring you back. Now, but we need to consider something. Something that Barzillai said, he said, you know, as far as myself, I mean, I'm old. How am I going to enjoy anything? I, I'm hard of hearing, right? I, I can't hardly hear. 
men or women sing. It's like, I can't even taste food right. You know, it's, I'm 80 years old. I mean, how much more life do I have? You know, I'd, I'd be more of a burden to you than a blessing. I don't want to be that to you. Just let me go back to Manaim and go die where my mother and father have passed and let me be there. Barzillai was a rich man. And so he respectfully declined David's generous offer. But notice that it wasn't because he would lose anything. Oh, you know, just have all this property here and everything, so I don't want to leave all that. It wasn't because of that. It was because of his age. He was advanced in years. He didn't want to be a burden to David. You see, Barzillai did not withhold what he had from David at one point. In, in fact, he used his wealth to bless David and his men. He, he gave them a spread that you, have, you and I have never seen before. He blessed them and made sure that they were encouraged, made to, to, to feel like they were, they were loved. And, and David sure felt that way toward him. When David and his men needed something, Barzillai was there to give them what they needed. That hospitality sometimes, oh my goodness, you have no idea how much someone needs someone else to just open up their home or just their heart to just bless them and welcome them. And that was Barzillai with David. He was rich personally on earth, and he was rich spiritually in a heavenly sense, and he was rich on earth because of that. He just, he was a rich man that had it all because the Lord had him all. That's why. Matthew chapter 6, verse 19 says this. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither, neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is there, your heart will be also. That was Bar's line. So Barzillai did one more thing, though. He did request something from David. He asked David to consider taking his son, Chimam. Uh, he's, uh, it's known that he, he was his son, and so take your servant, Chimam. As Barzillai was his servant, so it was that his son would be his servant. So he said, take him. And so David, honoring Barzillai, took his son with him. Uh, we can refer to 1 Kings chapter 2, verse 7, and this is David's instruction to Solomon, his son. And he wanted him to regard Barzillai and make sure you honor the, the household of Barzillai and, and all, all his sons. Let's continue and wrap up for the evening. Verse 41 says, Then all the men of Israel came to the king and said to the king, Why have our brothers, the men of Judah, stolen you away and brought the king and his household over the Jordan and all David's men with him? All the men of Judah answered the men of Israel, Because the king is our close relative. Why then are you angry over this matter? Have we eaten at all at the king's expense, or has he given us any gift? And the men of Israel answered the men of Judah, We have ten shares in the king, and in David also we have more than you. Why then did you despise us? Uh, were we not the first to speak of bringing back our king? But the words of the men of Judah were fiercer than the words of the men of Israel. So just quite simply as we wrap up this, this chapter, um, Israel the northern kingdom, and Judah, the southern kingdom. They were arguing. They were going back and forth. 
But the northern kingdom, kingdom felt like as if they were left out uh, in bringing David back to Jerusalem. It, it's a beautiful way of ending, all right? Because we know all the conflict that's taken place up to this, this point. The kingdom is being restored um, to David as it should have been rightly uh, done. And so here he is coming back. So now we have both Israel and Judah arguing the northern tribes and the southern tribes arguing about, hey, why'd you leave me out? Well, we left you out because he's our kin, you know, where he's closer to us than you, you know. And, but yeah, but yeah, you know, and they were going back and forth. That, that's, that's actually a good thing because they were arguing about their place before the king and really who was honoring him more than the other. That's, that's a good place to be. We can always compete to serve God more than others. But we should always serve the Lord out of a love for him and not out of competition with each other. You know, instead of arguing about it, we should just serve the Lord more and more and more. And why would we do that? Because we are compelled by his love. Because we want to honor and glorify him. Remember what it was that Mephibosheth said? What, what mattered more to him than anything else was the glory of the king. And that's where we should be. That above all, our, our chief desire should be to glorify the king. He's given us opportunity to do that. He's given us certain gifts. He's given us the power to choose. And I pray that we, will, we would willingly choose to bless and honor him by our character and by our conduct. May we be those people that honor him in that way. Father, we thank you once more for your word. I pray, Father, that these things would resonate in our hearts, that we would think about what we just went over, and that we would bless you by applying them, whether it's now or later on when we come across situations that, um, that demand for us to, to be reminded and, and, and apply these things at that time. So, Father, we thank you once more. Uh, I know that this evening was a word of work of sanctification. I, I pray, Lord, that, uh, Lord, we would take the time to read your word and to study it personally you know, on our own, that we would uh, continue to mature in you and, and uh, just learn how to walk in the spirit, Lord, and according to your word. We pray these things in Jesus' name.